One of the things it talks about a lot is this concept of image, which is the main way I use aging and understanding medicine in like understanding the operating system of medicine. Once I understood that image was the way ancient people looked at the medicine, I've really tried to like pull that back in and use it in my teaching. Hi, I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast for practitioners of acupuncture and East Asian medicine that connects together the voices of our community. How often have you heard this? I'm no good at marketing. I don't know anything about business. I hate selling, or I'm not a business person. It's kind of a mantra in our profession. And like any mantra or recurring thought, it will over time create exactly what it is that we're thinking about. In truth, I'm no stranger to these beliefs. And even though I grew up in a family of small business people, a family where people mostly didn't have a job, they had a business, it's taken the engaging of the practice of medicine to open me up to the importance of really engaging the practice of practice. What if the business of your practice wasn't separate from the practice of your medicine? And what if you gave as much attention to your business as you did to your patients. After all, the business is what allows you to have those patients in the first place. I'd like to invite you, even if just for a moment or two each day, that instead of thinking as your business, as something that you, air quotes here, have to do, it's actually something that you get to do. To connect with how it's a privilege to be in a position to craft your practice and your business in a way that reflects who you are and who you want to become. I get it that we are constantly interrupted, pitched, spammed, and if we're not careful, cheated by less than ethical people out there to steal our attention, time, or money. But I think it's a big mistake to say that marketing is evil. And it's disingenuous too, because really we all are in the marketing business. If you've been on a date, you've tried to sell yourself to someone else. And if you got kids, they're pitching you all the time. And you do it to them as well. And even with your patients, you're probably constantly marketing, constantly coaxing, teaching, suggesting that they somehow find a way to improve their health. Sometimes we are simply trying to sell our patients on themselves. Consider that marketing is nothing more than skillful human communication. And yeah, Those marketers that we find annoying, it's usually because they're unskilled or they have failed to recognize we're not interested in what they have to offer. Good marketing, really good marketing, and sales for that matter, is not about forcing something on someone that they don't want. It's about creating and delivering something they've been wanting and waiting for. It's about being attentive to what our patients and our potential patients want and how we might be able to help. If the focus is more on what you get from the interaction, then yeah, you might be moving into some smarmy territory. But if you are clear that what you have to offer, and respect that it might not be for the person that you're offering it to, then there's nothing unethical about what you're doing. And really, when we say we're not good at marketing, We're cutting ourselves off from vast communication resources that we've already got. And we're throwing up roadblocks to creating a business that will take us to where we want to go. It helps to know what you're about. And I suspect it's essential to know what your services are for and who they're for. That way you don't waste time on those who aren't interested or those who are really looking for a different solution. Again, business and marketing... It's something we have the privilege and the opportunity to do. It's an opportunity to create meaning, and it's an opportunity to create connectivity. Do you have a strong opinion one way or another about my thoughts here? And if so, would you be interested in a longer discussion on the topic? I'd like to pull together a panel discussion with three practitioners discussing the practice of practice. And if you'd like to join that conversation send me an email from the website. Also, if you want to dig deeper into different models of practice and engage with people that are as 
passionate about business as they are about the medicine, then join us in Malibu, February 9 and 10, for the Love Your Practice event. This is put on by our friends at LASA OMS, and it's a great opportunity to connect with others who are looking to rock their practice and make our medicine more accessible to more people. Pop on over to the show notes page for a link to the event. And if you can't make it, tune into the podcast that weekend. It's Geological is going to be there podcasting the event. You probably already know that Lhasa OMS is the largest supplier of acupuncture needles in the U.S., and they have an extensive inventory of quality products for your acupuncture clinic. Lhasa is also dedicated to supporting the profession with educational resources like Geological and this upcoming Love Your Practice conference. Visit their website for a wealth of educational blog posts, summaries of their webinars, and the schedule of upcoming webinars that range from clinical methods to practice management. In addition to supporting your practice, LASA OMS also works with state organizations to help protect and promote the practice of acupuncture in East Asian medicine. Be sure to sign up for their mailing list so you don't miss out on any of the resources that they've got for supporting you and your practice. Quick note here, in just a couple of weeks, Geological will be in Seattle hosting the first Geological Learning Event with Toby Daly on Sa'am Acupuncture. We've got just a few more seats left for this. If you've been noodling on learning this clinically effective method, grab one of those few remaining seats before they're gone. Visit the Geological Learning Menu on the website for the details. I've got Sky Sturgeon coming up here from Mayway. He's got a few thoughts on Yijing, Hexagram 31, Xian, Mutual Influence. And then we're into our conversation with Lorraine Wilcox on the Big Book of Changes. Hi, I'm Dr. Sky Sturgeon with Mayway Herbs. In 2019, Mayway Herbs will celebrate its 50th anniversary of providing authentic Chinese medicine. Mayway invites you to join us to celebrate the Year of the Earth Pig at our open house on February 8th. Check out our blog at mayway.com for details. We're about to hear the esteemed Lorraine Wilcox talk about the I Ching. In this spirit, at the break, I want to share a hexagram that I threw regarding Mayway's 50th year. My guest today is Lorraine Wilcox. You know, Lorraine probably doesn't need much of an introduction. She's notorious, especially if you're over on the Distraction Machine Facebook. She's got a bunch of sites there. She has her fingers in all kinds of the Chinese medicine pie. But the part of the pie that we're going to be talking about today is the I Ching. And the other thing is we're going to talk about medicine too. Anyway, hey, Lorraine, welcome once again to Geological. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate being here. I'm excited. This time I get to talk to you. <laughs> I'd like to begin with how people have wandered themselves into whatever it is that this conversation is about. Whatever, you know, it's like what got you to where you are? Nobody went to that high school career counseling thing and had someone recommend, oh, yeah, why don't you try Chinese medicine or. Chinese language or, you know, that kind of stuff. I'd like to know how you got interested in the I Ching. You know, I'm an old hippie. <laughs> and so I had heard about it, but it I actually had never been interested in it. When I went to acupuncture school, which I started in 1986, my first teacher, I actually don't think he was very good for, you know, the basic theories or fundamentals class. You know, he's an uh, English speaker, didn't speak or read Chinese, and there were very few books then, and you know it was supposed to be a three-hour class, and it often end after an hour and a half. But one time in the fundamentals class in my very first quarter, he said, oh, let me show you how to do a reading with the I Ching. And so I just was fascinated by it. I tend to work on obsession. You know, I get obsessed with things intensely, and then after a while, I'm over it. But with the I Ching, I stayed obsessed with it for a long time. So, you know, I bought a copy of the book and I got three coins and I started asking questions all the time because at that point my life was fairly chaotic. I'm good at stirring things up, or at least I was in the past. I just 
found that um, sometimes I couldn't understand what it was telling me, but when I could understand, it was always 100% accurate. So that just kind of made me want to keep playing with it. And, you know, eventually I got to understand more and more little by little. Um, so that was my introduction to it. I didn't read any Chinese then. Mm -hmm. So it kind of came from the periphery. You were just studying Chinese medicine. Your teacher says, hey, check this out. And you went, ooh. Yeah. Wow. I mean, he showed us how to do it. It wasn't just, you should check this out, but he showed us how to do it. And yeah, it was kind of love at first sight. What's the best way to craft a question for the I Ching? My suspicion is if you know how to ask the right kind of question in the right kind of way, it's probably going to be more helpful. It's true. And at that point, I was doing a lot of divination, both for myself and later I started, you know, if somebody I knew was having trouble, I'd ask for them. One of the most important things, I think, is to let go of what you want the answer to be and try to be in a neutral place where you can read it rather than reading into it what you want to hear. So if I was really in a moment of turmoil, that's not a good time to ask. I'd have to do whatever to calm myself so I could be open to listening. I think that's the most important thing. And then there's all this other stuff, like you can't ask yes and no questions because life isn't always yes and no questions. And Well, it's usually more nuanced than that. Yes, yes, yes. And you should have a time frame when you're asking so that if you say, will I be able to do this or get this? And then it says, oh, there'll be some turmoil, but eventually you'll get there. But you don't know if it means, you know, next week or next month or 10 years from now, if you don't have a time frame in mind when you're asking. So that was another important thing. Do you usually do it these days with the three coins still, or do you use the sticks? Or I have stopped divining a long time ago. I could still do it. I would still do it if I had a reason, but I have less turmoil in my life now, so I have less questions to ask. And I studied with a feng shui teacher since 1993 or 94, and he not only became just like teaching me how to do feng shui or anything like that, but he became kind of a mentor in a lot of ways. And one of the things that he would always say, um, there's a Chinese saying that when you're good at I Ching, you don't need to divine. I'm not saying I'm good at I Ching, but I've found as time goes on, I need to ask questions less because I kind of understand how the universe works a little better. I mean, that sounds pretty grandiose, and I don't mean it that way. But like now I know what causes chaos in my life, so I don't go there anymore. <laughs> now I know kind of how to act better and how to make better choices. So it's more like I've absorbed some of the thinking, and then I don't need to like ask it because I already kind of know but I would ask it if I felt a need to. I'm really struck by that. When you're good at the I Ching, you don't need to divine. I mean, that really, I mean, when I think about like working in the clinic, you know, practicing medicine, there are days where it's just not coming together and I'm kind of thinking about theory and I'm, I'm working with very basic building block stuff because it, it's like all I can do to orient myself. And then there are the other days I don't think about what I'm doing at all. I just do it. It flows. You know, it just flows. And it yeah. sounds like, I think with anything that we learn, music's the same way. You know, at first you're really working the chords, you're really paying attention. And then at a certain point, you just play music. So it sounds like with the I Ching, once you grasp it in a certain way, it's like gaining a second language. It's already there for you. I think so. So part of my kind of reluctance for doing this interview is that I haven't actually sat down and used it in such a long time, but it's just kind of become a part of me, you know, almost like, not exactly like a voice in my head, because, you know, I don't hear voices. But, you know, if I stop and think about whatever the problem is, I usually can 
decide to do the right thing rather than avoidance or building up anxiety and freaking out and getting people all agitated. I usually can actually know how to act if I stop and listen, (laughs) which I had problems with in the past. So it's really helped you to develop develop yourself in a certain way into a different kind of person. Yes. And my teacher, you know, he really looked down on divination in that sense. He really thought that was like the lowest possible level of the I Ching. Well, that was really useful to me because, you know, if you're an old hippie and if you live in the West and mostly what you hear about is divining with three coins and then if somebody's really fancy, they'll use the 50 sticks and so forth. And But that's just like like a, a wandering beggar's tricks or something like that. It's not really what the I Ching is for, but it's so much all we know in the West. Well, then you're the perfect person to talk to today about this. What did your teacher say was a higher form? What did he talk about there? So for one thing, the I Ching, which includes the commentaries that go with it, it's not just 64 hexagrams and, you know, the lines and the text for those hexagrams and lines, but there's also a body of that's often called in English the Ten Wings, which are attributed to Confucius. And among that, there's... Um, one that's called the Great Treatise, or it's hard to pronounce the pinyin, but Shitsa Zhuan. And like that is the most amazing document for, I mean, there are parts that are still mysterious and parts I don't understand and parts I don't get, but the parts that I get, it's just like reading Neijing, you know, you go back and read it and you see something you never saw before. And it's just like the light bulb goes on over your head. And so basically studying it for the philosophy, which does include the lines and the hexagrams, but it also includes the the other texts that surround it, then being able to see the world through different eyes after you've absorbed it is really kind of the goal. I will add one more thing, though, is in feng shui, um, or at least in the styles of feng shui that I study, there's a lot of calculation stuff, um, you know, to figure out the time periods and the current chi of the universe this year, the annual chi, and you know, all that kind of stuff. And the calculations are also I Ching based. So in I Ching, besides the text and the words, there's number and image or image and number, shang shu. So he was very much into calculations, but he wasn't into throwing coins. Um, and he was very much into the philosophy and the words also the Tao Te Ching. This isn't the teacher in acupuncture school. This is the feng shui teacher. Yeah. What kinds of things did you notice shifting in your life once you just started getting the aging in your bones, so to speak? When you made that shift from, oh, I kind of need to use a divination to orient myself to, oh, I've kind of got a self-correcting autopilot going on now because the aging is inside of me. So it's a little hard to isolate that because also at the same time I started studying things like the Tao Te Ching and Zhuangzi and, you know, it's a cumulative effect or a synergistic effect. And so to try and isolate this to the I Ching, I mean, I can try and address that, but I feel like all of them have worked on me and changed me and I still very much have a lot of liberty, but I can manage it better than before. So it's not like I'm inherently a different person and I haven't become a bodhisattva, although I wouldn't mind if I could do that. But definitely I'm not the same person as before. I, I can see your point. If you're studying I Ching, you're studying um, Zhuangzi, you're studying Tao Te Ching, Oh, man. I mean, that would just have to take your conceptual framework and totally like liquefy it and turn it into something else. Yeah, it really does. I mean, it's a slow process, and I'm an impatient person, but somehow I've never lost interest in those books. And year after year, you just absorb a little bit more and a little bit more, and your life becomes more simple, and you stop stirring things up quite so much. And even when you have trouble, your recovery time is quicker in understanding what happened and why and how can I 
improve myself and and you know i mean i i don't know if this is eating or doubting or what but i was just thinking the other day about pain and of course nobody wants pain but pain is an amazing tool for you to figure out how to look at things differently and when i was younger i had a fair amount of emotional pain because i did keep stirring things up in my own life and various other reasons but now that i'm older i have a certain amount of physical pain i mean i'm not complaining it's not a big deal but one of the things i've had to figure out is like we're so resistant to feeling the slightest sliver of pain and we just want a drug or something to stop it and who said you're not going to experience pain i mean it's just one of the changes and pain comes and goes and gets better and gets worse and when you resist it it actually makes it a lot worse so I mean, I use herbs, I use acupuncture, I use various methods of dealing with physical pain, but not resisting is a big thing that I think does have to do with change theory because everything changes, including your levels of physical comfort, and they'll change again. And, and in fact, as a doctor, I think experiencing pain makes me more compassionate towards patients. I mean, I was fortunate for so much of my life never being in pain, except if I hurt myself and then it would heal or something like that. And I think in the beginning, I was less sympathetic to pain patients because I just didn't understand how life-changing it could be. And then the first time I had some serious pain, I had some frozen shoulder like some years ago, that's all gone and so forth. It's like, oh, now I get what these patients are going through. And frozen shoulder is not serious, but it can be excruciating. Pain is beneficial. And, and so why resist it? Why not find ways to pass through it more gracefully? At the same time, trying to alleviate it. But I don't need to take all kinds of heavy drugs so that I don't feel one bit of pain. I mean, pain is something that can make you grow. I'm thinking of a time I, I, I generally do not have pain, but I wrenched my back at one point. And it was right around the time I was looking at a new clinic, which was a second floor walk up. And uh, with a wrenched back, I went up those stairs and realized there is no way I can rent this clinic. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm going to have patients like me coming in here. And I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Just how much of a barrier that was going to be for them. So it sometimes it is really useful. I, you know, and I've seen this with patients too. They've got something. It, it could be physical pain. It could be emotional pain. It could just be screaming anxiety, right? Mm -hmm. And all they want to do is just get as far away from it as possible. And And so often that wanting to get away from it, really locks it in. Yeah. At some point, I started getting some tinnitus and it would give me anxiety because I'd think, oh my goodness, do I have high blood pressure right now? Do I have this? Do, am I going to have a wind stroke? I, you know, blah, blah, blah. And somewhere I read that one of the best things you can do with tinnitus, besides, you know, of course, treating it to try and get better, but is just to make friends with it and not resist it so much. And when I stopped resisting and just started trying to find ways to live with it, it was so much less bothersome. So yes, the goal is to heal and not have it at all. But I mean, in the meantime, you need to find ways to live with things. And I think books like the Tao Te Ching and the I Ching make me better able to cope with discomforts and changes, whether it's, you know, these physical changes I've been talking about or life changes. The Tao Te, not the Tao Te Ching, although the Tao Te Ching, yes, could work this way, but the I Ching in particular, it's kind of a roadmap. It's like, here's a situation and it can go like this, or it can go like this, or it could go like this. You're not just in this, oh my God, it's like this, I'm stuck forever. But you see that there's possible pathways. Is that, do I have that right? Or am I just making stuff up? When I was divining, let me tell you about one instance. Um, my daughter was born like four months before I graduated from acupuncture school. It wasn't planned that way, but you know, life happens. And then my ex wasn't 
working and he wasn't very interested in working. So I was like doing acupuncture school. I was like supporting me and my daughter and my ex. He wasn't my ex then. And I was becoming increasingly unhappy. You don't need all the details, but I also was reluctant just to walk out because the effects it would have on my daughter if I was, if I didn't have a child, I would have just left pretty quickly. But, you know, with a child, you have to think differently. So I asked the Yijing, what would be the results for all of us involved if I were to leave this now, meaning in the immediate future as soon as possible? Because I told you time, you've got to have a time idea. It gave me like, no, not now. I don't remember the exact hexagram, but it was definitely a don't do it at this point. And so every six months, because you're not supposed to repeatedly ask the same question in a short period of time, or it'll kind of feel harassed. (laughs) So every six months, I'd ask again. And when my daughter was about four and a half, I asked and it said, go for it. And at that point, I said to my daughter, "Um, how would you feel if your father and I didn't live together, but you still saw him all the time? You lived with me, but you still saw him a lot. Um, And she said, well, then at least you wouldn't be grouching at each other all the time. (laughs) So I figured she was cool with it, you know, and I left and she's an amazing person. She's 30 now. She's an amazing person and we're all okay. But I used it at that point to kind of advise me about when would be the smoothest thing, not just for me or not just for me to follow my urges and so forth, but to make the situation kind of work for all of us. And it really seemed to tell me the right thing. (laughs) I love it that your daughter was old enough that you could actually include her in it. And you also got the confirmation from her. Or I talk about hitting on all cylinders. Let's move this conversation a little bit then from from the divination piece, which actually I've got a, a mild interest in it, but not nearly as much interest in the divination side of the house as I do in the medical side of the house. Can I say one more thing about divination though? Sure. I'm kind of, like I said, an obsessive person, but a little bit of a chaotic person. And I never would have sat down and studied the I Ching at that point, just, you know, going over it in some kind of linear order and studying it. But because, you know, we're all obsessed with me, right? (laughs) It's all about me. And I was kind of troubled at that point in my life. I asked the questions relatively frequently. And so little by little, you get different hexagrams and then you study them because they're relevant to me. And so even though I didn't do it systematically the way a Chinese scholar might have studied in the past, but little by little I absorbed it because it was relevant rather than just something like school study, you know? And so I don't think divination is bad. I think it's a good entryway, but I think it's not a place to get stuck. Well, I love the way that you frame this, that you could study it in a scholarly way. That's usually a little bit dry. Or you could do it from this sort of hands-on, I need to know this stuff. When you say, oh, there's certain hexagrams that show up a lot, I don't use it for divination a lot, but I use it on occasion in a very chaotic way because I basically don't know what I'm doing. But I have noticed that there are certain hexagrams, those damn things are following me around. Definitely. I get that. The one I always used to get, I don't know if I'd still get it because I don't divine much anymore, but I always get the one that says, I think it's 44. It says, the woman is too strong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. I always get the one. It's like, oh, I should relax a little. I should slow down. I should lighten up. (laughs) My earliest remembrance of the I Ching, I had the, um, the yellow one. Who was that? It was the one translated from German. Baines? The Wilhelm Barnes. Wilhelm Barnes, yeah. Yeah. Um, back back in my hippie days. Baines? Maybe it's Baines. Baines. I don't know. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. The yellow one with the forward by C.G. <laughs> that part was cool. Uh-huh. And I can remember constantly coming across the phrase, perseverance furthers. And it's like, oh, God, really? Couldn't this just be easier? No, no, perseverance furthers. Like, keep at it. Ugh. Yeah. 
Yeah. God, I hated that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anything else to say about divination before we jump into the medical side? I don't think so. I'd like to know more about the medical side and how you see this connecting up with medicine, in particular, if you see connections between the I Ching and like the uh, Liu Jing, the six confirmations, or the Wuxing, the, the five phases, that kind of thing. Do you see connections? There are all these books in Chinese and a few in English that go over all these kinds of like systematizing medicine according to the I Ching or aspects of medicine. And I've totally lost interest in that because like my feng shui teacher would say, it's kind of like party tricks or something like that. It's kind of like like a magician that can impress the crowd. But is it really meaningful? I don't find it really meaningful. So, you know, and there seems to be this urge even among some Chinese people to make more and more complex calculations and more and more complex correlations. And like, you know, the I Ching and the Tao Te Ching, they're kind of about simplicity and the way nature works, and they're not about making it more and more complex. And so I've kind of lost interest. I mean, I, I really liked that stuff for a while, and I tried to learn all of these complex correlations and calculations, but that's not what the I Ching is to me. The I Ching is like the operating system, and those kind of things are like apps. I'd rather focus on getting the operating system downloaded into my brain than learning all these apps but forgetting about the operating system. Hi, it's Sky from Mayway Herbs. The hexagram that I threw was number 31, Xi'an, Mutual Influence. The image is a lake nourishing a mountain. The superior person encourages people to approach. The judgment is mutual influence, prosperous and smooth, favorable to be steadfast and upright. This perfectly describes Mayway Herbs. We are committed to providing the highest quality Chinese herbs, fun and educational information, and customer service. We believe that by remaining steadfast and upright, we will ensure the advancement of Chinese herbal medicine. Be sure to check out the recipes in our newsletter and blog on Mayway.com to see about our experiments in making medicinal wines, cooking with herbs, and even herbal Easter egg dyes. Throughout 2019, to celebrate our 50th year, Mayway Herbs will be offering monthly and weekly specials and a newly designed website. Now I'm really curious about how myself or someone listening to this could begin to engage the I Ching in a way, you know, like a hacker, for example. How do we approach it as an operating system? So once again, I would suggest that people get a translation of Shi Tzu Zhuan, which is hard to say, but the great treatise, or it's sometimes called appended sentences. And it's two volumes of commentary that are attributed to Confucius. And you know, if you want to divine and use the I Ching and get you know, familiar with the hexagrams, that's a great thing. It's a good thing. But the operating system is kind of described in those two volumes, which are in the Wilhelm Baines or whatever it's called. And they're also translated in other volumes. And you can even get translations for free online, although they're really old and not very good by today's standards. Um, there were a lot of like Christians that translated the I Ching and then they use all of this like kind of almost Christian terminology. So some of the free versions you can get online are kind of Christianized. Um, <laughs> but anyway, these two volumes are really where there's a discussion of how the I Ching works and how why the hexagrams mean what, mean what they mean and just the underlying philosophy of it. And um, it's a really pretty amazing document. There's sentences, there are parts of it that are totally obscure and I don't have a clue what they're talking about and there are parts of it that don't interest me, but the parts of it that are good are just simply amazing. One of the things it talks about a lot is this concept of image, which is the main way I use 
aging and understanding medicine in like understanding the operating system of medicine. So this concept of image, the word in Chinese is xiang, X-I-A-N-G, fourth tone. As Chinese medicine modernized, and I don't just mean TCM in the 1950s and stuff like that, but you know, even in the late 19th century and into the early 20th century, there was this move to like modernize and so forth. They wanted to make the medicine sound more and more scientific, I would say pseudoscientific. Um, and they wanted to kind of remove some of the more poetic aspects or once I understood that image was the way ancient people looked at the medicine, I've really tried to like pull that back in and use it in my teaching. And so actually in my slideshows, when I teach, I do use a lot of photos and images to try and implant the images in the students' minds. Um, this is how they understood it. So for example, if you want to take the image of the body is one of the images is a country, right? And the border walls are the skin. You know, there are quotes that support this from Sun Tzu Miao and earlier. And the organs are the government, which is in Suen chapter eight. And while not all of the government officials make sense to me, but the liver as the military general does make a lot of sense. Then when you think of the pulse of the liver, for example, um, we often call it wiry, but they didn't have wire back then. The word actually means bowstring, like the string of a bow. And you know what they made bowstrings from? Sinews, which are associated with the liver. And the bow is a military weapon, and the liver is a military general made of wood. And not only that, they used composite bows in the Han Dynasty and later and in other places in the world, a composite bow, you glue, or I don't know how the process exactly, but you glue horn on the inside curve of the bow and you glue sinew on the outside and the horn makes the bow stronger and the sinew makes the bow more flexible. So actually in bow making, you would use sinew to increase flexibility. So this association of liver with wood, with sinew, with a bowstring pulse, with the military general, it's totally one image um, or a, you know, a bunch of related images. It's not random stuff. When I went to school, it was random stuff that we all had to memorize. But like once I started applying the concept of image, I could find the connections and so when something doesn't make sense to me, I try to think, how would a Han Dynasty person see this? What technology did they have in the Han Dynasty that would be reflected in this? And that often helps me come to an answer that connects everything that before seemed disjointed. But it's all because I understand that image, and image is a concept that came from the I Ching before it was, before Neijing was written. And Neijing is full of it, and all the medical books up until 200 years ago were full of this concept of image. I mean, they didn't say, I'm going to talk about image now. They just used the images, but we've stripped them away because they just used it and people just understood it. So it's a way of looking and seeing things differently, looking for the image. Yeah. This makes a lot of sense. I think back on when I was in acupuncture school, and yes, so much stuff seemed so random. Some of it fit together, some of it was like flying out in the wind, you know, like that small intestine, the foo organ of the heart. It's like flapping out in the wind. That's a little difficult. I've looked in old books, and I really have never found any book older, new, Chinese or English that really can give an explanation that feels like, ah, there's the answer. Well, what you were just talking about with image, and it makes me think about resonance, because images have resonance. And images, they don't come from our linear, scholarly person sitting in a study with a teacup, working this stuff out. It comes from 
all of your experience. And it comes from the world as it is and your experience with the world. And it comes from a series of resonances, right? Like, like that set of bells that they had in the Han Dynasty where you can hit one bell and other ones will ring. Yes. Right? Or just like if you have a guitar sitting and uh, leaning up against the wall and you hit a tuning fork with an A tuning fork, the A string will vibrate in resonance. So yes, things that have the same image resonate with each other. Or we use the word correspond, but break it down to co-respond. They respond to each other. with They respond with each other. And, and the image gives us a very full, incredibly textual, not just visual, but you can put sound and emotion and experience and everything into an image. You know, it's just dense with information. Whereas if you're just writing out words, yeah, not so much. Yeah. You have to kind of cultivate seeing the images in things, but we have a modern mind, a Western mind and a modern mind. So we, the part of the cultivation is not necessarily seeing the images that me, Lorraine, who grew up in New York State, would naturally come by. But I have to know a little bit about Chinese culture to see images in the same way. So therefore, when I read history and anthropology and you know, philosophy books um, that aren't specifically related to medicine, but they really can help me better see the images. This brings up another question for me, and this, uh, this is a question I've had for a long time, and not just about the I Ching, but really about much of Chinese medicine in general. How do we, as English-speaking Westerners that grew up nowhere near China, didn't grow up anywhere with the Chinese language, let alone Chinese thought, Chinese language, Chinese ways of thinking from centuries ago. I mean, even modern Chinese don't understand this stuff. Correct. Right? <laughs> so, so here we are attempting to approach this stuff, and we are so separate in time and space. But are there bridges, or how do you build bridges, or how do you find ways of connecting where you are as a modern woman with stuff that was written thousands of years ago in a completely other part of the world that has nothing to do with what we've grown up with. It is a cultivation, you know, it's not something that you can just instantly have. And it's funny, you know, I graduated from acupuncture school in 1988, and I'm still every once in a while, the light bulb is going on, and I'm realizing that I'm not seeing something correctly because I was taught by modern people and that what they said couldn't possibly be true if I look at it from an ancient person's point of view, I, I'm still unlearning things I, that I learned in acupuncture school. It's kind of funny, but so some people are really, really practical and they just want to know how do you treat and how do you make your patients get better? And that's like a very, very good thing. I'm for better or for worse, not a very practical person. <laughs> I'm a book person and I like knowledge for knowledge's sake, even if it has no use or no apparent use at this time. And so, like, I mean, actually, I'll tell you something. I haven't had my TV on since the presidential debates before the last election. Um, I don't, I mean, I do waste a lot of time on Facebook, but like what I like doing most is reading and translating and exploring this kind of stuff. It's, it's the one thing I've never gotten tired of. I, I'm, a Gemini and I'm a snake and I'm always jumping from thing to thing, but I never got tired of Chinese medicine once I learned how to read Chinese. And so, I don't know, it's something that I've been cultivating for years and I still have a lot of cultivation to do. But like basically what I tell, what I say is, you know, kind of my time period is the Ming Dynasty, even though, you know, I talk about I Ching and Nei Ching, but a Ming Dynasty doctor would also be reading those things, you know, and studying them and so forth. And so what I tend to say is like, my goal is to cultivate a virtual Ming mind, 
Um, and I know it's impossible. I'll never get there. But that's what I'm trying to grow in my garden, you know, is a virtual Ming Dynasty doctor's mind. And I just keep at it year after year. But, you know, I'm more of a translator than a practitioner. Since you are working on a virtual reality Ming mind, how does a Ming mind view time and space differently than our modern minds? That's a good question. I mean, I have some things I can say about time, but I don't know if I have a, a deep answer. But, you know, translating things, like let's say I, I translate formulas and how to, you know, different formulas and how to make them and so forth. And it will say, boil it for the length of time it takes to eat a meal or for the length of time it takes to walk three li, which is about a mile, or boil it for three boilings, which basically it's a weird procedure, but you bring it to boil and then you add a spoonful of water so it slows down and then it gets back to a boil again. That's one boiling. And then you add another spoonful of water and wait till it boils again, that's two. And you do it a third time, that's three boilings. They didn't have, or a lot of times it says boil it down to 70% of the volume because they didn't have a clock like we have. I mean, yeah, clocks in the Ming Dynasty, the emperor had some, maybe some rich people had some that came from Europe. Yeah, they had sundials. Yeah, they had incense sticks that were calibrated, but they didn't use time as it, thinking of it in such a precise way that we do, and they had other ways of measuring it. Or when you make pills, it's like make the pill the size of a soybean or something like that. They didn't really give measurements for the size of things in many, many cases. So they just, you know, had a different way of relating to things more by phenomena in terms of how long to boil it than by like minutes on the clock. And so it's it's really different. Well, and I think about it these days, especially because I see people wearing Fitbits, you know, and they're like measuring their steps. I mean, no one goes out for a walk anymore. They're getting their so many steps because they're wearing this thing because they're trying to tick some marks and they're trying to get their sleep a certain way and make sure they drink all the water they're supposed to drink and blah, blah, blah. Things that we used to use simply to measure time, now we are using to, you know, sort of gamify ourselves. Talk about time and space being different. But yeah, back in the Ming Dynasty, how would you make sense of time? The size of a certain bean, how long it takes you to walk to the marketplace, which would be different than how long it takes you to walk up and get a, you know, bucket of water from the mountain stream. Yeah, yeah. But but these would be the measures that people embedded in that time and space would naturally have. It would make complete and utter sense to them. Have you noticed some people, if you ask them, do you tend to be thirsty? And they'll just want to answer, well, I drink, you know, eight, eight ounce glasses a day. Yeah, but are you thirsty or are you drinking that because you should? Well, I always drink that because we should, you know, and you can't even get them to say if they're thirsty or not. They don't even know. All they know is the measure of how much they're supposed to drink. Have you noticed that? <sighs> all the time. All the time. I had a woman in just the other day. Uh, yeah, same thing. Very difficult to get her to talk about thirst. And when I came to realize with actually many of the patients that I've got, they are not in touch enough with their own being to know if they're thirsty or not. Number one, they, they've outsourced how much water they should have to something on the internet that said, what is it, your shoe size divided by three times your height? I don't know. Um, <laughs> there's some... Where the hell did that water thing come from? I'm thinking to myself, you, know, you see all this stuff on the internet about, oh, you know, if you're not hydrated, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, how did we live past, you know, into the year 2000 before we were worried about hydration? How did the Chinese live? Because these people, they say nothing counts but pure water. And, you know, Chinese didn't tend to drink water. They drank tea. You know, they drank other things. They drank liquor. They didn't drink water. Um, so if you need that much water and tea doesn't count, then all the Chinese should have been dead by now. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, it's a curious thing. So so this brings me back to the I Ching. 
Yeah, sorry. As an operating system. Uh-huh. No, no, it's great. I this is this is actually the perfect tangent. Oh my god, I'm I'm actually sitting down to write something for my clinic newsletter and the lead article is are you drinking enough water? And I'm I'm going to be going on my rant because you know, you get these people they've got puffy puffy tongues. They've got edema. They're drinking a gallon of water. Their skin is dry. Their mouth is dry. Well, you know, my mouth is dry. I guess I should be drinking. They're so waterlogged, they can't get fluids up to their mouth. I know it's very contradictory for regular people to think this, but if you get yourself unwaterlogged, guess what? Your skin's going to get better and your mouth is going to get wetter as well. Have you seen the article by Sabuti Dharmananda? It's from like a long time ago, but about, you know, this water drinking myth. It's pretty good. I'll, I'll go check that out. That, that will be helpful. So this brings me back to thinking about the aging as an operating system, because right now in our modern world, we've, how do we know what's healthy for us? It, most of it has been outsourced outside of our bodies, outside of our experience. There's some expert who's going to tell us what's good for us or what's not good for us. And that's not just what we eat and how much water we should drink, but you know, I suspect the kind of life that you're supposed to live, all that stuff. Sounds like the I Ching can help us get back to a slower and uh, maybe more natural sensibility of how change unfolds, and more importantly, how we can place ourselves within that change that's unfolding. I, I totally agree. And I also, once again, think the Tao Te Ching is really good. And once again, with both of these books, with all of these books, there are just parts you have to jump over um, because you don't understand and they don't make sense or even you don't like them. But then there's gems that you find that speak to you in this moment. And if you read it again a year later, it'll be other things that jump out because you've changed and your situation has changed and your understanding has changed and your needs have changed. Um, I mean, one of the things that I would recommend to people is just to read them repeatedly, like just read a couple paragraphs before you go to bed. Like that is also is including the sheets of Juan, which I still can't say. You know, every night read a couple paragraphs before you go to bed and kind of as you're falling asleep, meditate on it. Or I don't know if meditate's too strong a word, ponder it, whatever. And just let it absorb little by little and and it does work on you and change you. I really love both of those books, I Ching and Tao Te Ching. I think about certain books that I've read over the years. You know, I read them as teenagers. I read them as a young man. I read them as an older man. They kind of show me who I am at this moment in time because the stuff that I read 30 years ago, I read it, but it doesn't ha- it doesn't hold anything. There's other stuff that I read now, and it's like, oh, yeah, I see that. This feels like a, a leading edge of some sort. There's some real juice in it. Seems like these kinds of books, they're really mirrors. They they give us an opportunity to see what is up for us in this moment. It's like, how do you know where to navigate? Well, just go where the juice is. Probably a good way to go. Maybe by the time we're 120, we'll become sages. Yeah. Okay. So that's a great word. We hear about sages. We hear about immortals and that kind of stuff. You know, for that matter, we hear about masters all the time. You know, I, God, you know, most of us will never be masters. How many of us will get to be sages? What does it mean? What does it actually mean to be a sage? From the Chinese perspective that you have been immersing yourself in, what does a sage look like? How would you recognize one on the street? Well, maybe the word has been used differently at different times, but basically a sage is an ordinary human being. It's not somebody with superpowers or anything, but it's one who's just really become so wise and can see what other people don't see, you know, underlying the subtext, the, you know, and know how to respond in a way that will be beneficial for the most part. 
But like you and I, we could become sages. I mean, I doubt that I will, but it's not impossible. It's not like becoming a deity or something like that. That's impossible. Becoming an immortal, I think, I don't know if immortals exist or not, but for me, it's impossible at this stage. You know, it takes more magic than I have (laughs) Um, or more cultivation than I'm willing to give. But sagehood, anyone could if they work on themselves i still have a long way to go though well this seems like a pretty good place to start winding it down that's a real gem there do you have any english language versions of these books that you particularly like or that you would recommend or is this the kind of thing where you just have to go read through a couple of different versions and see what lights your fire The ones that I like best might not be the ones that other people would like best because since I've spent some time working through it and since I've, you know, studied Chinese language, then I want ones that are more linguistically oriented. Um, But for example, for divination, if somebody wants to attempt divination just as a way to see what it's all about or see if it works, what I've always told people to do in the past is to throw a hexagram and then go to a bookstore, although they're hardly bookstores anymore, but to look, you know, let's say if you get hexagram 51, to go to the bookstore and like sit down and read hexagram 51 and all the different versions of the I Ching and see which one speaks to you. You know, and that just to know that if you do fall in love with the I Ching, that version won't necessarily be the one you'll always favor, but I think it's as it changes you, then the translation that you want to use also changes. My favorite one in the beginning was Master Knees. And now that's like the last one I'd look at um, because he really explained everything. And at that point, I needed lots of explanation. But now I know, well, that's his explanation. And if I resonate with it, great. And if I don't resonate with it, then that's not the book for me anymore. And I want a book now more that really is like what the I Ching actually says and not somebody's interpretation of it. And then I I feel like I'm at the stage where I can kind of work out my own interpretation of what it actually means. But I never would have liked the books I like now back then. Start with whatever speaks to you and then be willing to buy another version when you feel like you've grown a bit. Well, that's just exactly like Chinese medicine, isn't it? Patients ask me this all the time. Well, is, is this a good herb for me to take? Right. Sometimes they read something on the internet. Is this a good herb for me to take? Well, depends at what time and for what reason and what else is going on. It might be, right? At a certain point, it's just right. At another point, not helpful. At another point, it would be harmful. We can use that uh, basic Chinese medicine thinking of ours to recognize that things are appropriate at a certain time and at other times they just may not be. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to be too rigid. You know, some people who get into more scholarly stuff, then they look down on people who aren't at that stage. But I mean, I developed through a series of, I don't know, level makes it sound like I'm at a higher level now. Um, Maybe I am, but you know, I'm at a different level now. And so... If we're talking about change theory, we shouldn't think there's one version that's good for everyone. Um, it changes. Yeah, change theory. Lorraine, thank you so much for the time today. It's been an absolute delight to sit down and go over the I Ching like this. Really appreciate it. It's not much tangible. You know, all the calculations and, and methods of like making everything correlate to everything is more tangible stuff, but I don't think that's the heart of it. All right, that's it for today's conversation. Hey, if you guys like what you're hearing here, if it's helpful to you, please tell your friends about it. Also, I'm kind of curious. I can look at the download statistics for this podcast and I see, obviously, there's people in North America that listen to this. There's folks in Australia, Russia, 
Japan, China, or China, imagine that, China. And I'm wondering where it is that you're listening to this podcast from. So if you don't mind, if you're listening to this right now, pull out your phone or maybe go buy a postcard. Take a picture. Let me see where it is that you listen to Geological from. You can email it to me. The address is michael at geological.com. Or you could send me a postcard. Wow, postcard. That is so old school. I'd love to have that. You'll find the address over on the website. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.